0: Um, It's good to be with you here again this morning. We're continuing in our series um, that's kind of walking through the book of Judges. I'm sure that you've realized this by now if you've been with us, that this is different than a series where we go verse by verse through um, a book of the Bible, but instead what we're doing is we're using the book of Judges as a catalyst, really, to talk about worldview. Right To talk about who God is and who we are and what God wants to do in our lives. And um, we've been fighting in this series a false thought. And it's a thought that, that happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's a thought that we all struggle with continually. And it's just this deep, embedded, overwhelming belief that our way is the best way for us to be happy. Yeah, I mean, there might be other ways for other people to be happy and and what you believe is good for you, but what I believe is best for me clearly is best for me. I know me best. And what we've seen time and time again through the story of the judges in the history of Israel is that no, God's ways are the best way for us to be happy. Right? What does the proverb tell us? It, that there's a way that seems right in our own eyes. But eventually, that pathway leads to death. And we've seen that when we decide to do what's right in our own eyes, that we end up, unfortunately, oftentimes in misery. But God will use that misery to pull us back to him. And that's what we've seen, and that's where we continue today as, as we get into this. But, but as we start, I want to ask you just a simple question. Do you know the difference between regret and repentance? See, and the reason that we have to ask the question, do we know the difference between regret and repentance, is because the story of Israel is full of regret. Unfortunately, it's not full of a whole lot of repentance. The same could be said for the story of Matt. Right? I have spent a lot of time in my life in regret. Usually because I got in trouble. Sometimes just because I feel guilty. Oftentimes because those two go together. I was always a pretty decent kid, and my parents are here. You can ask them later. I was a well-behaved, decent kid, except for the times when I wasn't. (laughs) And it's possible that there were some little snapshots of my life where I was kind of ornery. I may have talked back on occasion. I may have decided that I was going to go live with my grandparents I I remember vividly once that my brother came and picked me up because he's like, dude, you can't walk there. It takes 15 minutes to drive to grandma and grandpa's house. You're not going to make it. He was mean to me too. So I want to preface this by saying these are all his fault. (laughs) My brother was mean and he was bigger than I am and stronger than I am and older than I am. And so when I got really mad at him, I would go into his room and I would tear his posters off his wall. And I would invariably get in trouble. I did that a lot. There are times when I think I should replace all of Mike's posters that I tore off the wall. But I don't want to go to Spencer's. (laughs) Which is where they all came from. So really I was doing the Lord's work. (laughs) Just didn't know it. But here's the thing I got really good at saying I'm sorry I got really good at apologizing And I got really good at saying That's my fault Right, I won't do it again Except what would I do the very next time You parents, you know this Because your kids do the same thing You've done the same thing We Turn around and we do it again one more time and then when we get caught or we feel bad or trouble mounts we say I'm sorry I'm sorry in fact we learn at some point in time that the faster we say sorry the, the faster the lecture stops right so we're not really sorry we just want it to end we want it to be over whatever the pain, whatever the suffering whatever the problem, we just, we just want that to be done and that's regret It's not repentance. See, here's the problem with regret. Regret without repentance leads to a cycle of sin. This is what Israel finds itself in in the Judges. It's what many of you find yourself in um, earlier in your life. and, And frankly, if we're being really honest, it's what many of you find yourself in right now. In a cycle of sin. And you could be any number of places in that cycle. You might be in the middle of your sin thinking, I know the best way for me to be happy. Right? This isn't anybody's business but mine. But eventually, me going my own way leads to bondage and it leads to problems and it leads to re- uh, regret and it leads to pain. And so there's a point where we cry out in regret and we apologize. But we don't apologize because we're upset about our sin and about our problem. We apologize because we're upset of the consequence that we're in. We're upset at the difficulty that we find ourselves surrounded by. I apologize because I don't want the lecture. And I don't want to feel bad. Not because I want to change my behavior. Not because I affronted a holy God. Sin, regret, apology. Sin, regret, apology. It's a cycle that we find ourselves in. It's exactly where Israel was time and time again. But the difference between regret and repentance is this. Repentance, when I truly repent of my sin, not just regret my sin, but when I truly repent of my sin, here's where I find myself. I find myself in a position where I hate my sin. Not I hate my trouble. But I hate my sin. Because I see my sin for what it is. My sin is an attack on a holy God that loves me. And when I can be there, when I can get to that place, that's where this beautiful thing called gospel transformation happens. Where I start to be different. Not because I'm strong enough to willpower my way through it, but because the God of the universe through Jesus Christ starts to change me and make me different. And the goal of any Christian ought to be gospel transformation where we are different than we used to be. Not because we want to stay out of trouble. Not because we want to avoid hell. But because we hate with every fiber of our being our sin that separates us from God. We're going to see how this plays out in Judges 6. Go ahead and open up your Bibles if you've got them. If not, you'll see some of it on the screen, but not all of it. And in Judges 6, you're going to see 6 verse 1. It's the same thing we've read time and time again already in this cycle of sin that comes from regret but not repentance. And what happens is one more time, we're going to find ourselves in the exact same spot. 6 uh, 1 tells us the Israelites did evil In the eyes of the Lord. You're like, Matt, we've read that like 12 times already. I know. Right? Because they keep doing the same thing over and over again. Because they're stuck in this cycle. Because they've never truly repented of their sin. They've just regretted the trouble that they found themselves in. And we'll have to wonder if this time is going to be any different. Let me read you the first six verses. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. uh, I'm sorry, did evil in the Lord's sight. So, the Lord handed this is what happened. You, some of you picked up on that. You're like, He said something that wasn't on the screen. Here's why. This is the NIV. That's the NLT. I don't know why I did that. So, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm sorry. And you're just going to have to decipher. I mean, it means the same thing, the words are just going to be different. Like, mental note, I'll fix it for next time. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And so here we find ourselves in this this same place that we've been before, that because they've done evil, In the eyes of the Lord. And we know this by now. When they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, it's because they've started to compromise God's ways and slowly started to work in the worship of these other false gods. Specifically, Baal and Asherah. Right? They've stopped giving God their best, and they've started to compromise a little bit. And we know why this happens. We've talked about this. Because when things are going well, wholehearted obedience to God feels like overkill. That's just the way it is. When things are going really well, wholehearted obedience to God feels like overkill. It feels feels like it's too much, right? Like like I'm giving him most of my time, effort, and energy, so can I compromise just a little bit? Because if I give God everything, that feels like it's too much, And so I start to compromise a little bit, and I get a little bit complacent. And then the next thing you know, we find ourselves in this place where full-on now, again, the worship of Baal and Asherah. So what does God do? God says, that's who you wanted? Fine. You can have them. And so what happens is, eventually, when... The Midianites come against Israel. They used to be strong enough to resist. Well, why did they used to be strong enough to resist the Midianites? Because God fought for them. But when they stopped following God, God stops fighting for them. And so now they can't stand against the Midianites. And the Midianites are so powerful that they've decided to completely impoverish Israel. That means whenever Israel plants food, Right, Midianites are like well, you know what? Let's go get theirs. Did you ever see the movie Ants? It's a terrible movie, or it was great depending on who you are. My kids loved it. So the Midianites in this uh, this terrible analogy—it's not even in my notes. It just—you're <laughs> like, why are we talking about it? I don't know because I can't help myself. But they're like the grasshoppers that come and take all the food whatever. Watch it. Go home. I think Woody Allen is the voice of the main ant. It tells you what you need to know about the movie. Um, anyway, this is what this is like. Yeah, it's Woody Allen. See, it's going to bug me all day now. I think Sharon Stone might be the other ant. Doesn't matter. But the Midianites are cruel to the people. And so what do they do? They get to a breaking point, like they have every other generation up till now. They get to a breaking point where they finally cry out to God for help. But here's what I love. Look, look, at, look at verse 7. Look at why they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord because they had regret, not because they were ready to repent. Repent. They cried out to the Lord because they were sad about where they were. They cried out to the Lord not because they wanted to do whatever was in them to make them right with God. Right? It's not like they had this burning desire in them that said, we have got to get right with God. This is the God of the universe. This is the creator and sustainer of all things. This is the lover of our souls. We have got to get right with God we've got to do that. Let's cry out to him and get right. No, 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 no. Here's what they did. They cried out and said, God, here we are again. Midian is bothering us. Could we please have another miracle? See, they're crying out of regret, not out of repentance. And a lot of you have been in that position before. A lot of you have found yourself in the position where when you are crying out to God, you're not necessarily saying, God, I've sinned against you. And I want to be right with you in my heart. What you're really saying is, God, I have jacked up my life so bad, I need a miracle to fix it. Now, the good thing about God is that he's always there. He's always ready to intervene on your behalf. But you have to understand the problem. What happens when we start treating God like he's our buddy at the police station? See, this is what happens. We start treating God like he's our buddy at the police station who can fix a ticket for us. Like, God, I got myself into this bind again. Can you fix it for me? Can you help it go away? Instead of, deep down in our heart and our soul saying, God, I'm here again, and I hate that I'm here. I hate that I'm here because it's not who I want to be. So they cried out to Midian, or I'm sorry, they cried out to the Lord because of Midian. And you'll notice the first thing God does here, which I think is, is very interesting, he doesn't send them a judge this time, not right away. He doesn't send them a savior right off the bat. Here's what he does: he sends them a sermon. Sometimes when we really think we need saving, uh, what we really need to do is shut up and listen to a sermon. Right? Because if 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 they really understood why they were where they were, they wouldn't be there in the first place. So God doesn't send a judge, not yet. What's he do? First, he sends a prophet the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites because he needs them to stop. They regret where they are, not what they've done, and he needs to remind them of what's going on. And so he said, this is what the prophet says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you, I drove out your enemies. I gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God, who must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. This is what the prophet says. The prophet basically is saying, What did you expect? Do you remember God? Do you remember the God who brought you out of Egypt? You remember that, God? You remember when you were crying because Pharaoh was drowning your babies in the Nile River and you were under such heavy oppression that you said, God, help us. And so we did. That God came to your rescue. And when Pharaoh refused to let you go, he brought plague after plague after plague on Egypt. But he spared you to show that you were his people and he was your father and he loved you. And it resulted in the death of all of the firstborn children in Egypt. Rich to poor, even the animals. All of the firstborns died, but not you, Israel, right? Because God instituted a sacrifice, right? So that the blood of the lamb could cover you and you put it on your door. And when the angel of death passed through, he passed you over. And so, in that way, God brought you out of Egypt. And then when Pharaoh's heart was hard and he chased you and it was just Pharaoh's army and the big giant sea, what did I do? I parted the sea so that you could walk through on dry land. And when Pharaoh chased you, I allowed the sea to cover him up in his army and he was decimated. And in that way, you were victorious. And I led you in the wilderness and I gave you the law to govern and I poured myself out for you and I showed you my presence. I led you by a pillar of fire at night and, and, and a pillar of smoke during the day. My glory, the Shekinah glory of God, went before you. And when you were hungry, I had it rain manna. And when you were thirsty, I called water from a rock. And when people attacked you, I stopped the sun in the middle of the day. And extended the day by hours. Why? So that you could have victory over your enemies. And when you came into the land, right? You stepped foot in the Jordan River and the waters backed up. And all you had to do to make the people melt in fear was walk around the powerful walled city of Jericho. The whole battle plan was walk around it and blow your trumpets. And I gave it to you. And we went into the land and we conquered the land. And you knew that my way was right because I am a powerful God that's with you. And then you got comfortable. And then you got complacent. And it seemed to you like following God with my whole heart was necessary when I was wandering in the desert. It was necessary when Egypt was chasing me. It was necessary when I needed to take the city of Jericho. But now that you're comfortable, you think it feels like overkill. And so you started to flirt with those other gods that seemed like more fun than me. And you gave yourself to them. I told you, I told you, this is what God's saying through the prophet I told you not to worship those gods. I warned you, and you did it anyway. And you did it anyway, and now you found yourself right here in this same spot. See, here's the deal a lot of us cry out to God expecting deliverance because we know he loves us and we know he wants to provide for us. We just sing about, come to the altar, your father's arms are open wide, right? We read the story of the prodigal who's sitting in the pig pen, just starving to death, wishing he could eat pig slop because he's that desperate. And he remembers, oh, I've sinned against my father and I've sinned against God. I'm going to go home. Right And the Father is waiting, watching, arms open. So we go through this whole thing and we think, okay, all we need to do is say sorry and and, and God will bring us back again. But God needs you to look at your sin. I'm not sure why this is a thing, but did you ever have dogs when they were puppies that would go to the bathroom in the house? You with me? Did you ever have the philosophy, well, here's what we'll do. We'll rub their noses in it. Yeah, okay, right? Because that'll teach them. It doesn't really teach them. All that does is get a dog with stuff on its nose running through your house. It was a bad idea, right? But this is a thought, right? It's like, listen, God isn't wanting to rub your nose in your sin. It's not what God's trying to do. God's not trying to teach you a lesson. God's not trying to get you. But God is going to make you look at your sin long enough to look at your sin deeply enough. God is going to allow you to struggle in these moments, right? He, God loves you, and he is never going to leave you or forsake you. He is never going to leave you or forsake you, but he is not going to save you from every consequence of your sin. He needs you to reconcile it. Why? Why? Because he needs you to know what you need to be saved from. And what you need to be saved from is not just the consequence of the sin. It's the sin itself. Because the sin itself is what separates you from a holy God. Not the consequence. See, God, God doesn't want the Midianites to oppress Israel. But when they cry out for help, God wants them to acknowledge first and foremost, Midian isn't our problem. The Midianites aren't our problem. What's our problem? Us. That when we had the chance to either go God's way or go our own way, one more time, we chose to go our own way. God says, I want to, I want to redeem you. I want to free you from this. But first you have to be broken of your sin, not just of the mess you find yourself in. And we see how that plays out when he, when he starts to talk to Gideon, right? But first let's look, look what Paul says about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin, and it results in salvation. Well, how? How does it lead us away from sin and result in salvation? Well, it does that because godly sorrow says, I hate the fact that I have put this thing between God and I. And I need God to change my heart so that I stop doing it. Godly sorrow, and it leads to salvation because then all of a sudden I'm not putting something between me and God. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. You don't have to feel bad about that. You don't have to feel bad because you're moving on from it. God is forgiving you and you're moving past. But worldly sorrow that lacks repentance, that results in spiritual death. Because we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. But godly sorrow, Paul says, just see what godly sorrow produces. An earnestness, concern to clear yourself, indignation over your sin, alarm, longing, Paul says, longing to see me, zeal, readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you've done everything necessary to make things right. Godly sorrow demonstrates that I am ready to make things right. Let me ask you a question as, as we are going to think about communion later, and and we're going to process through this. What is it that you're giving God when you're crying out to him? Are you crying out for godly sorrow? Are you crying out in worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow says, God, I am stuck and I need your help. I need you to intervene. I need you to make straight the paths. I need you to make everything clear for me. I need you to take away these consequences I can't believe I did it again. I got drunk one more time. I got fired from my job, right? I, 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 um, I, I ruined things with my family and I just need you to fix it for me. That's worldly sorrow. God, fix it for me. Do some kind of miracle and fix it for me. But godly sorrow says, God, I can't believe that I misrepresented you. Godly sorrow says, I can't believe that I sinned against you. And God, I want you to get this sin away from me. I want to cut this sin out of my life. Everything it takes so that I don't end up making the same mistake and repeating the same sin. I don't want to be stuck in a cycle. For some of you, if you really are demonstrating godly sorrow that leads to transformation, it means you need to stop being in the playground that you're in. Right? I mean, if you've gotten drunk one too many times, perhaps it's time to stop drinking right? Is it sinful to have a drink? No. But if you keep making the same mistake, you can't say, God, I'm super serious this time. I won't do it. And then go back and do the same things that you've always done. No, it's time to cut that out of your life. You're like, well, I mean, I didn't mean to log on and watch a bunch of pornography this week, but it happened, right? Well, what's the plan to do differently? I'll try harder. Like, or maybe it's time to get rid of your laptop. Maybe it's time to go back to a flip phone. Maybe it's time to put some kind of filter and accountability software on your, your system. Something. Right? Are you like, you know, I, I didn't mean to be snapping at those people. I didn't mean to be so angry with my kids or angry at work or, or to have road rage or whatever it is. And you know what? Maybe it's time for me to start talking to somebody about my anger and about where it comes from and about why it's there. But godly sorrow wants to cut sin out of your life. It wants to be transformed. It wants to make you different. Worldly sorrow just wants the situation to be over. And then we naively put ourselves back in the same spot and wonder why it keeps repeating. See, worldly sorrow might really want to stop doing it. Don't be confused. Just because you really want to stop doing it doesn't make it godly sorrow. You might really, really, really not want to do it again. Right? That doesn't make it godly sorrow. What makes it godly sorrow is saying, okay, it's not about how strong I can be. It's about asking God to do the things to change me. And that means confessing my sin. And it means doing whatever it takes to ruthlessly cut it out of my life. It's different. We go back to the Israelites, and God is going to intervene. He sends a prophet, and we don't know what the time frame is. We assume it's a decent chunk of time for the prophet to go through the land sharing the message, the message of you are here because of your sin, not for any other reason. You're not here because the Midianites are stronger than you. They've always been stronger than you. Right? It's not like they just got stronger than you and all of a sudden decided to take over. No, they've always been. You're here because of your sin. You're here because God said, don't follow those gods, and you did follow those gods. God said, be holy because I'm holy, and you refused. This is now where you find yourself. That's the message of the prophet. But God does follow up with a judge to intervene. The angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah. Um, it's not Oprah. I don't know what it is, but we'll call it Oprah. Which belonged to Joash and the clan of Abazir. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing weed at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites, right? He's, he's hiding, trying to get enough food to feed his family because if the Midianites see it, they take it, right? So he's hiding, trying to, to do this. And, and ironically, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Gideon hiding from the Midianites, trying to, to get a meal together for his family in secret, because he doesn't want somebody to come take it from him, is greeted by the angel of the Lord that calls him a mighty warrior, mighty hero. Right? And and here's where you know some people are real slow learners. Because I want you to listen to Gideon's response. Because it's not awesome. Now, Gideon ultimately is going to be a man of faith, and Gideon ultimately is going to do God's will to deliver the people out of the hands of Midian. But here's his response. After the prophet has roamed the land telling people why God is no longer fighting their battle for them, here's Gideon's response. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Here's Gideon, you know, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. And Gideon saying, uh-uh, I'm hiding, threshing grain in a wine press. I'm hiding from the Midianites. God ain't with us. If God's with us, then why is all of this happening to us? Well, we know the answer, right? All of this is happening to them because they decided that their way is the best way to be happy. But God, because he's faithful and undeterred, he says this. Go with the strength you have, mighty hero hiding in the wine press. Go with the strength you have. Rescue Israel from the Midianites. I, the angel of the Lord, God, am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least of my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you. You will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. God says, I'll take care of this for you. I'll rescue you. I'll intervene. You've cried out to me because you're in a bad spot. You're in a bad spot because of your sin. I told you why you're in a bad spot, and now I'm telling you that I will deliver you. And then in verses 17 and on a little bit, Gideon says, okay, if it's really you, God, um, stay here. I'm going to go create a fellowship offering meal, and I'm going to bring it. And if you accept it, I'll know you're really God. So he does that. And then a little bit later, the angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock pour the broth over it Gideon did as he was told and the angel of the lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand and the fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought and the angel of the lord disappeared so now Gideon knows that this is god sending him to conquer the midianites he says if it's really you prove it god proves it and now he says okay i'm ready so what do you suppose the first call of business is attack Midian. Go get him. Do your thing. Are you thinking like um, Independence Day? Jeff Goldblum talking like, do your thing. Do your your stuff. Take him out. right, that's the whole plan. That's it. Except God comes back and he says, no, no, no. We're not ready. We're not ready yet to go to battle against Midian. We're not ready to stop the problem because you have to demonstrate that you're ready to cut sin out of your life ruthlessly. You have to ruthlessly cut sin out of your life. You have to demonstrate that you're ready. So before God gives Gideon his marching orders to go and take the land, to go and remove the enemy, to go and conquer the army that's against them, here's what he says. First things first. Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Go And pull down your father's altar to Baal. That's right. Gideon's dad has an altar to Baal. And an Asherah pole right next to it. And God says, you want me to deliver you? Fine. But first, stop pretending that you're worshiping me. Stop pretending that you're really sorry. And repent. Repent. Pull down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary. Laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar. Oh, and oh, by the way, for wood, use the Asherah pole that you're going to cut to pieces. He says, I will intervene, but you've got to Repent. And the way that you're going to demonstrate that you're repenting is that you are going to show that Baal and Asherah are nothing. Tear down the altar. Cut down the pole. Defy those false gods and declare your allegiance to me. Then and only then does God give Gideon instructions to defeat the Midianite army. This is what it is. Okay? Now, The reason this matters is because we have to understand, we go back to the very beginning, there is a clear difference between repentance and regret. Right? If you find yourself personally, in your family, in your life, if you find yourself repeating the same sins at the same speed, with the same regularity, there's a good chance that you don't really hate your sin. You just don't love the way you feel afterwards. This is akin to the college student or grown person who gets drunk every Friday night and then every Saturday morning swears at the foot of the toilet I'm never doing that again until next Friday night. Proverbs says this is like a dog returning to its own vomit. Right? I mean, that, that's about as graphic as you could make it. This is a dog returning to its own vomit time and time again. If you find yourself repeating the same sins with the same frequency, the same regularity, there's a good chance that you don't really hate your sin. You just don't like the way you feel afterwards. Repentance, though. If you want to know the difference, get this. Repentance is when you just, no matter what, want to be right with God. No matter what it takes. No matter what it takes, you just want to be right with God. And so, here's a couple things to think about. Um, one, is the sin in your life much different from the sin that was in your life 5, 10, 15 years ago? If the answer is yes, that the sin in your life is different, and I don't mean you switched your style of booze, right? Right? But if the sin in your life is tangibly different, then that tells me that you are being transformed by the gospel. But if your sin is relatively the same as it's always been in your Christian life, then I'm wondering if you're not repenting as much as you're just having worldly sorrow. Repentance Just wants to be right with God no matter what it takes. Worldly sorrow just wants to feel better for a minute. And here's a question maybe to help you. If you knew that you could do whatever you wanted and get away with it, no consequences, would you do it? In other words, are you following God because you want to follow God? Are you following God because you don't want to get in trouble? And if you're only following God because you don't want to get in trouble, then that's it's an indicator that you've not really repented. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to take a minute and we're going to go to communion. Pastor David's going to come up and he's going to sing one more time for us. He'll come to the altar. And we're going to process through this. As he sings, I'm going to ask you to take whatever time you need. Take whatever time you need to legitimately decide if you're ready to repent. Repent has this idea of, here is the direction I'm going, and now instead I want to go this way. right? I'm going in whatever way I thought would make me happy, but I'm going to stop and I'm going to say, I know God's ways are right. And that God's ways are the best ways for me. I'm going to stop doing whatever seems right in my own eyes. And instead I'm going to do what God has told me to do. Are you ready to really repent? If you're ready to really repent, then I'm going to say that this is a perfect opportunity to do it. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness and mercy But we have to be ready to repent. Otherwise, we're just continuing the cycle of sin. And Jesus Christ did not die on a cross so that we could continue to sin with the same frequency and the same regularity that we always have. Jesus Christ died on a cross to free us from the power of sin, to make us right with God. And so we repent. We leave our self and our past behind, and we embrace what God has for us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for who you are, for the words that you give us, for the grace that you pour out on us. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that sets us free. We love you and praise you. Amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Go in peace.